Welcome to the When I Grow Up podcast with me, Katie Filo. Each episode, I interview a guest about the many threads that have come together to make their life and career so far. My guests, yes, guests, this episode are Speech Tank co-founders Marissa Polanski and Christine Keller. Based in Brooklyn, they're both speech writing experts specialising in one-of-a-kind speeches for any occasion. Marissa also heads up brand marketing for Coworking Space Union, having spent many years in publishing as a book editor at a major publisher. She's also a published author of a series of children's books, including Today I'm a Race Car Driver and Today I'm a Dancer. Christine is currently Director of Brand Partnerships at The Wing, a network of work and community spaces designed for women. Prior to this, she was a writer covering fashion and wellness. She holds an MA in psychology from New York University, where she worked as a trained field worker, mastering a method of questioning that helps people share their stories. This is the first time I've interviewed two people on the podcast, and oh my God, it was so much fun. These two are just such warm human beings. They have such a wonderful friendship. They met in college and immediately hit it off and they have since become roommates in New York for 10 years and they've even started a business together. I dropped by their apartment in Brooklyn for a chat. We talked all about how they met, the importance of friendship and having what they call hype women in these moments of self-doubt to support you, how they started their speechwriting company Speech Tank and how they balance multiple jobs alongside each other. They genuinely had so much sage advice to offer and I left beaming ear to ear. It was such a great conversation and I hope you enjoy listening to it. Also, unfortunately, the sound is a little patchy in places. Uh, I'm still learning on the job during this and it was my first interview with three people. I've learned an important lesson here, but I hope it doesn't detract from the brilliance of these two women and everything they had to say. I hope you enjoy listening and if you do, it would be amazing if you could rate or review the podcast. It gives it a welcome boost and it also helps people discover it. Thank you so much. And here is the episode. Welcome, Christine and Marissa, to the When I Grow Up podcast. Thanks so much for having us. We're so excited. Yeah, thanks for having us. I was just uh, explaining this is the first time I've ever had two guests on at once. So it's going to be interesting. Um, I know that you guys have been living together for a good 10 years at this point. So <laughs> yeah, it's a marriage. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. can just finish, finish each other's sentences. Yeah. yeah, we're better as a duo. So I'm going to begin with the question I ask all guests is I want to know all about a younger Christine and a young Marissa. What were they like and what do they want to be when they grow up? I always look at Marissa <laughs> to answer this question for me, um, which is really funny because we didn't know each other when we were little. Although I, I feel like we knew each other by way of our stories. Yeah. And we had similar upbringings, I would say. Um, we both are from families with brothers. So I have three brothers. She has two. Um, so I grew up definitely having to um, speak my mind. There was so much chaos all the time and the boys are loud. Um, so I really learned how to stick up for myself and be opinionated and not afraid to um, share my opinion and you know points of view on things, which I think really uh, affected who I am now. Um, it was like definitely challenging in the best way possible because I had just like great smart brothers who I had to sort of like literally come to the table and talk louder than um and I was also a massive dreamer that's what I think when I think of little Marissa and I'm, I'm still like that I think so I love that yeah um uh, like you were like that too definitely yeah. um also grew up with two brothers um one just a year older and then another five years younger my dad immigrated from Peru in his 20s um and I feel like him being Peruvian definitely informed what our household was like um, he's definitely the stricter parent, um, <laughs> but my parents worked very hard. Um, they were 
yeah, working full time and have really serious jobs. Um, so I feel like that sort of informed a lot of my household too when I think back. Um, but I think going back to Marissa's point, I think I was a dreamer because of that. I saw them always pursuing their dreams, wanting more, never settling. And when I think about myself, I think for sure that's that was younger Christine. Totally. And I definitely like by the time I got to fourth, fifth grade, like definitely had lofty dreams for myself. <laughs> Do you remember specifically what those dreams were? I I definitely always said I'm going to be an actor. But then I think by the time I got to fifth grade, I was like, I'm going to be a producer. I had <laughs> no idea what that meant. Yeah. Christine just told me the story the other day. She was like, I always wanted to be a producer. And I was like, no, what? No kid even knows. Like, I don't even know what that is now. What are you talking? You don't want to be in front of the camera? And she was like, maybe until I got to be like nine or something. I was like, So I was obsessed with IMDb. <laughs> the inter- unusual obsession. Yeah. She's an unusual gal. <laughs> the internet movie database for those of you who don't know. And I, at 10 years old, I would go in and I would just search people for like hours. I would study it and I'd be like, I want to know every single executive producer. I want to know every producer, every story editor. Like what even is that? And, and now IMDb is like doing well. And I'm like, I, I support it. Yeah. <laughs> I supported it when it was a baby startup. Okay. <laughs> It's interesting that you're following your curiosity, though. Like, it must have just been the people's paths that you were interested yeah. in. Yeah. And maybe not necessarily what they were doing, but just knowing that that was possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was so funny because I remember I remember being obsessed with the Olsen twins in, like, second, third grade. And I remember my brother being like, Christine, like, the internet now is this, like, resource where you can, like, look up your heroes. <laughs> and he shouldn't have told me that because I just would spend hours being like, the internet. Like, the Olsons are my heroes. <laughs> it, was, it was the Olsons and Christina Ricci. That was it. That was my search history. <laughs> really dates you. Yeah. yeah. De- definitely you, dates me. I, when I was little, I wanted to be Mariah Carey, for sure. Yeah. I can't ever remember a time not until later. So Marissa is a phenomenal singer. She she could be Mariah Carey. That's not She's very humble, but she has an immaculate... As my wife, as she previously (laughs) referred to herself, only she would say I could be Mariah Carey. Also, I don't know that I want to be Mariah Carey now, Christine. Sure. But then... I remember. But with those pipes? Yeah. yeah. Now you've made me really curious. I want to know. <laughs> we, yeah, we might have to end yeah. on a tune. Oh, my God. Show. I'd have to have a lot more wine. <laughs> I'll, har- I'll harmonize with you. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting, I think, we're the generation that had the internet in our hands. Because I remember at school, did you have in Carter? As a, as yes. A yes. Like, that's how I found information. And then, obviously, as I think teenage years could have could google and i'm really glad that i didn't have like twitter or anything like that because oh, totally. i feel like i probably would have you probably would have tweeted christina angulera yeah i think didn't you write people by hand oh yeah i, I wrote letters <laughs> absolutely what, what were you asking I mean, I was just like, you know, to Freddie Prince Jr. I just wanted him to know that someone, maybe the only person, supported his work. And I mean, you knew all about him from IMDb. Exactly. What about education for you? What what kind of role did it play in your life? Were you academic? I'm a giver. Christine always says that if so, we met 
um, in college and uh, senior year. And she always says that if we had met sooner, I would have been a straight A student. (laughs) (laughs) I remember getting to know. Well, no, Marissa. She would have been because she was a straight A student, and I was always like, "But who cares? I'm like, I'm living my life the way." Like, but I do know that when I was younger, education was like massively important. But mainly because I was, um, I loved reading and writing, and I think it was the first thing that I noticed that I was like that I excelled at far beyond my peers um, at the time and that I was really had a passion for. And so for that to be like a passion to be aligned with your schoolwork was exciting. Um, And ultimately that's what I followed. But you for you. Oh yeah. Well, I remember meeting Marissa in college senior year and her, she'd be like, I'm just going to, whatever, I'm going to wing this test. And I'm like, you're not going to wing it. You're going to, you're going to study. I'm going to sit right here and you're going to study. And I'd like come back an hour later and I'm like, are you watching Laguna Beach? No, we're really reaching here. <laughs> this is a reach. Absolutely not. And I, and I would just hear, let the rain fall down. Like, like I was getting an education in Laguna Beach, Christine. Equally important. Yes. Yeah. Equally important. But yeah, I I think I was always really academic. I think my parents are really academically inclined. Again, they were very career oriented. And I think my dad worked so hard to achieve his dreams and come to this country. And I think I never wanted to take any of that for granted. And yeah, you follow what's around you. You follow the examples in front of you. And I think they also really talked about it a lot. Like, they were pretty authoritative with with school, not in terms of like checking for grades, but I think just sort of like the long game. It wasn't like, what did you get on your report card? But it was more like the long game. What are you going to do with your life? Sort did of you feel any kind of pressure or to kind of achieve certain things and make them proud? Or were you able to make decisions based on what you wanted to do? I definitely made decisions based on what I wanted to do. Cause again, I think my dad didn't even know what a report card was. That was something where I think if I did well, I'd be like, dad, I did well. Cause I think it just mm-hmm. felt so good to make him proud. And I mean, my parents are my heroes. I think they're the smartest Aww. people in the entire world. So I think anytime I got any of sort of positive reinforcement from them, it just motivated me to achieve more. So yeah, I think, I think I definitely got the achievement bug early and I was like, oh, this feeling of doing well is kind of addicting. And I also felt like knowledge was so powerful and I felt like I want to be the smartest person in the room because I just want the tools to be able to navigate the world better than anyone. And it's really nice having that structure that academics gives you. Like you've always got the next thing to achieve and you know exactly the next thing you need to check, the next box you need to check. And then obviously you're spat out into the actual world and you don't have any of that structure anymore. So I can really see how that kind of path is reassuring for others. Yeah. I can understand how it'd be reassuring for some. (laughs) (laughs) But Marissa, I will say, Marissa's also the type of person who doesn't have to study for a test and will still get the A. I mean, it's, she had, didn't have any problems. (laughs) Like it's like by, by saying that she wasn't as focused on grades doesn't mean that she wasn't excelling or doing well and you both met at NYU she's my wife (laughs) (laughs) is that that right no we met at Wisconsin I I did go to NYU for grad school but yeah we we met in Wisconsin our senior year and were you both studying the same degree no I was studying psychology Marissa was studying English which I think um ladders up to kind of what we're doing now in different ways um is apropos to our lives now met through a mutual best friend and yeah it was love at first sight do you remember the moment you both met 
Yes. Yes. Christine can tell it better because she has a much better memory. Than I bet you can I? Story yeah. <laughs> Actually, not surprisingly, not that many times, but I yeah. think. I, I do remember what you were wearing, yeah. okay? Christine <laughs> yeah. has yeah. a knack for remembering what people were wearing when they first met. Yeah. It's a little alarming, but it's cool. It's awesome. You just have this, like, vision in your mind of that, of that night. <laughs> yeah. I, it's not a skill that I even want to have because I think it's probably scared off a few people, but nonetheless, yeah. I, I have it. So what it's do you the moments like this when you yeah. need to recreate the moment. I will always remember this black and white striped shirt that you're wearing, Katie, so be careful. (laughs) Yeah, always, always be careful um, the first time you meet me. Be careful what you're wearing, um, because I'll remember Do you hear that, listeners? Be careful what you're wearing. She's watching when you do it. Yeah, exactly. People are like, signing off now, I'm afraid. Yeah, yeah, so you were wearing this green shirt, this green shirt. A V-neck. It was a V-neck shirt. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> I you didn't even remember. No. A lot of detail here. I mean, I remember um, it because she told the story to me. Yeah. But no. Well, I remember being very surprised at Marissa's voice. I hadn't heard her voice yet. I had heard some of her videos of her singing, but I hadn't heard her speaking voice. <laughs> She's so embarrassed right now. And and I remember being like, oh, that's a, not the speaking voice that I would have attributed to what you. did you think I was going to sound like now that my voice is being broadcast to people? <laughs> I, I was like, this is a unique voice. Oh. Yeah, you've got star power, Polanski. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I remember Marissa was going out that night. And what did you ask me? You asked me to come out. Or no, you I invited you out. You invited me out, but you also um, texted me to come back over. I'd left, and Marissa texted me to come back over to see what she was wearing. You were like, is my outfit okay? <laughs> and, and I remember telling her. I it, thought that I was giving you a shirt. No. Okay, well, listeners, we have, <laughs> we need to go back and confirm our story, okay? Well, in my mind, I was helping her. In her mind, she was helping me. Maybe it was both. Yeah. <laughs> A little of both. A little of both. Yeah. I think we had the shorthand right away, though. Yeah. And this was just the spark in the beginning of what has become a really long-lasting friendship. Do you remember kind of being each other's, like, support throughout the whole of your college years uh, to just kind of guide each other through it? Yeah. So we met senior year, so that was kind of interesting because we had already had such a formed college experience and a group of friends. Um, but I remember feeling like like it is kind of funny that we're talking about our childhoods and that they are so similar because I remember feeling like we were kindred and that like every story that Christine had to tell, I had a similar experience. And you don't meet people like that so often, so um, that was really exciting to me. Uh, even though she tried to make me study a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and go out. Okay. <laughs> Both. <laughs> um, yeah. And I just remember thinking that she had such a similar sensibility. Like her, I mean, Marissa is one of the most empathetic people I've ever met. She's one of the kindest people I've ever met. And she was so funny. And, and yeah, we just had similar upbringings. I remember Marissa's probably, no, she is the only person on earth who's heard of the movie Trading Mom <laughs> to go back to- Great mom. <laughs> I mean, great movie if you haven't seen it. Also great mom. Yeah. To go back to um, pop culture, little Christine. Um, I, and Marissa also had this encyclopedic knowledge of pop culture too, which I loved. <laughs> and Trading Mom is the weirdest movie. It's, it's these three, it's Anna Klumsky, who's in Veep now. Yeah. Um, she wants- 
to trade in exactly she wants to trade in her mom who says he's basic and they she wishes that she didn't have her as a mom and then she goes to the mommy market and gets a new mom <laughs> it's so but dark in the end it's her mom all the times are it's her mom because it's so dark she's like i can't remember my mom and the so old woman who that. cast the spell is like well you, you need to remember her <laughs> if you'd like to see more yeah watch on <laughs> We can edit that part yeah. out. I don't know why you thought that was a good idea. I, got, I don't know. I went down a corn maze. Yeah, I got yeah. taken. I was like, I got okay, <laughs> come back. Fast forward to graduation. Do you remember how you were both feeling and the conversations you were having around the time of knowing what you wanted to do next and where you were going to go? Yeah. I, I mean, in my mind, Christine had such a clear path because to go back to her family, her her mom their, her mom and her dad are both doctors. I mean, her mom's a professor of nursing and her dad's a doctor. And so I think she always thought she would get a secondary education. Um, that's my memory of it. You might have a different story. Yeah. I, I mean, I remember being, I remember crying almost like yeah. every day yeah. when when it ended. I didn't have the the math in my mind yet. I think I was sort of like, what am I going to do next? Like, am I going to go to grad school or am I going to, I was even thinking like, maybe I'd pursue film. Like, maybe I'd be a producer. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so I remember you know, constantly feeling kind of catatonic and paralyzed and like, I, I really don't know, like, what door do you open? And when you're that age, you feel like it's the end of the world. Yeah. You feel so yeah. old. It's such a big decision at 18 to decide what you think you're going to do for the rest yeah. of your life. Because it does feel like that, doesn't it? Like, it you're like, I'm picking this path gonna have to go down it I don't know if it's right though yeah. yeah now everyone talks about pivoting but that wasn't such a popular right. term back then yeah. so I think no it was like oh I have to decide what I'm doing and that's it yeah, yeah. and I majored in English which um in case you don't know that's not a very clear path <laughs> afterwards like everyone was sort of like do you want to be a teacher which that is the most amazing job and so hard but I knew it that was not what I wanted to do so I kind of always wanted to be a writer but how does one sort of careerify of being a writer. I wasn't sure. Um, and so I definitely was really lost. And in the end, Christine moved to New York um, to get her master's in psych at NYU. And all of my other friends moved to New York pretty much as well. And I moved back to Baltimore to save money. And I was working as like uh, an editor at a medical journal um, to like and living at home. And I just remember for the first year after college, probably I would like, cried every day and would just call my friends and be like who were in New York and go, come up on the weekend sometimes and just sort of scroll my money away, knowing that I wanted to move to New York and not totally sure what I would do. So that was definitely a really, it's funny to look back on it now, but it, cause it was a blip and that's what I would tell people. But um, at the time it was a really, really challenging time. The first couple of years out of college. Yeah. Yeah. I also think with social media now, the world is so different. I mean, we had Twitter when we were graduating, but now with Instagram too, and being able to DM your heroes and you just have access to people and you have access to watching different career paths and podcasts yeah. like this one that can inspire you. Whereas I feel like when we were graduating, we didn't have any of those resources. It, it was like, how do you prepare yourself for yeah. what you're going to – how do you cultivate a life? And it's basically ripping yourself out of a comfort zone into a big city where you may not have your networks and to, and to take risks. And I think to, like, to do that without really knowing what is next and if it's right for you is absolutely terrifying at that age. Like even doing it now is scary. Yeah. Um, and that's essentially what 
graduating in, it's, it's taking a risk, isn't it, on a first job or a first opportunity and hoping that it's right. Yeah. So how how did you get to New York? Like, did you make that happen? Yeah. Yeah. I So I lived at home and I, I remember... I was working at this medical journal and I remember the, the woman that was temping and the woman I did well. And so the woman was like, do you want a real job? Here's going to be your salary. And at the time salary was something that I was like, it was a good amount of money, not now, but then. <laughs> and I had this crossroad and I was like, no. And so then I made a desk calendar. I remember until September and I used to cross off every day. And I was like, I'm quitting September or like September one, I'm moving to New York. And, um, and yeah, so then I was lucky enough to be in a situation where I was living at home. So I saved my, like basically all my money and moved to New York, like a tiny, tiny nest egg. And I was like, I have to find a job. Um, before this runs out and, um, Christine and a friend, another friend of our, we, we all moved in together, um, in this apartment, awesome apartment in little Italy. And, um, and yeah. And then I, I remember I walked by scholastic, the book publisher, and I would walk by it like every day. And I felt a pull to that. And we've not talked about this, but I'm a little woo woo. And I was like, I will work there. I mean, I went on lots of interviews and I did all the things. Um, and I wasn't, it wasn't panning out for me and I didn't know why. And it was right during the recession and it was like hard for everyone, but it feels like you're the only person in the world. Um, and then I eventually got a, a break and they were like, I met someone and they said I could intern at Scholastic, but I was 23, I want to say, or 22, almost 23. And I thought like, what? I have a college degree. I don't, I can't intern. Like, I'm, you know, but it was the only way in the door. And so I did it for a little while and then I got really fortunate and a job opened up and, and I got it. And then I, I ended up seeing that for a long time. So, um, yeah, I just believed, I guess I always wanted to move to New York. So I just figured you got to make it happen somehow. Yeah. And it's like, when you look at people's careers and like you say, you're looking at all these people on IMDb, it's easy to think that, you can just follow someone else's path or do something similar and it will work out the same way. But I think the biggest thing I've realised is that there's just no set route at all. And no. you could never have predicted that you would have ended up at, you know, where you were or getting a job. No. But like you said, it's just believing, isn't it? And yeah. just kind of keep ploughing on and just having faith totally. that you're going to get there. And having good friends to remind yeah. you in your weaker moments mm-hmm. that it will work out. You won't be the one person yeah. in the world who doesn't find a job. Yeah. yeah. So you were, doing, you were doing a master's in psychology. I was doing yeah. a master's in psychology. And by the time Marissa had got there, I was in my second year. Yeah. And then by the time graduation was upon me, well, that program was interesting. My peers, many of them were a lot older. So they had already had a different career path. A lot of them were graphic designers and copywriters. And they had had these really interesting lives. And I kind of felt like I was missing out on something in New York. And I lived so close to NYU. I would walk there every day. And I was like, what is it like to take the subway to work? <laughs> and like, do you go to happy hour after? I didn't, I wasn't living in that culture. I was still very much a student and had been a student for four years. So it felt like six years of being a student. So I think I really, yeah, I was, I started to really dream about what this life working woman life would be like. In that kind of setup as well. Yeah, exactly. And I think I was a little burnt out. It wasn't an easy program. And I think by the end, I was kind of like, I don't know. So yeah, by the time graduation came around, my peers were either going into PsyD programs or PhD programs or doing a lot of research. Um, so those programs are incredibly competitive. And I just sort of thought to myself, like, I don't know, I think I think I want to try something else. And maybe I'll end up going back to grad school to, to do the PhD or PsyD. Um, that's the thing with psych, you have to end up doing those degrees to make it. So it's a lot of schooling. Yeah. 
or maybe I'll do something else. So I had a professor who kindly introduced me to psychology today. So I started writing for them and I was like, maybe I'll just write about psychology. Like that's seems like a, a thing I could do. And she was writing such cool articles and they were going like viral on site today. They were like the number yeah. one reads and she was 23. Yeah. And it was before the dot-com boom where now it's every print magazine has a digital mm-hmm. arm, but that didn't exist then as much as it does now. People weren't investing in digital like they were back then. So I felt like I could sort of stand out in a way. But yeah, so then I was like, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to I'm gonna work at Condé or I'm going to work at Hearst. And I realized quickly that you know you have to intern at those places. It's a little bit different now, maybe, but you had to sort of be grandfathered in. I think Scholastic, maybe publishing in general kind of is that is that way. And so I realized, oh, I can't just walk on to an editorial job at these magazines. So one day I remember out of sheer frustration, I ripped out a masthead to Vanity Fair and I emailed the associate publisher, Anjali Lewis, who was amazing enough to write back to me. And I went in for an info meeting. My email to her was crazy. I can't even believe she responded. We, <laughs> we laugh about it now because it, it was so funny. It was like, Dear Miss Lewis, I love your advertising work. <laughs> it was bananas. Like, I would not give that to anyone to read, yeah. to, to emulate. And it worked out. We hit it off and her assistant happened to be leaving. So uh, I got the assistant role shortly thereafter and then started at Vanity Fair. So that was my first big job. And when you were making all these decisions and going through the motions of these first jobs, did you ever have niggling thoughts at the back of your mind? Like, oh, I'm not sure if this is actually what I want to be doing. Do I want to be doing this? Or, or did you oh, actually God. feel quite happy you were on, the, on a path? No, I think those thoughts were all consuming. I feel so bad for Marissa at the time. <laughs> She's had, she was having to live inside my brain. It was, and she I lived with do. me. <laughs> there was nowhere she could go. Uh, no, it was terrible. I was like, do I want to be a psychologist or is this the right path for me? What am I doing? I was banging my head against a wall every day. But then once you make the decision, you just kind of have to just yeah that, I think that's it like there's no right or wrong decision there's just the decision and then you make it yeah mm-hmm. and then you like you said pivoting is such a thing now that it's just picking those forks and sometimes I think it's just knowing how to pick the forks because sometimes I think like, like I can be very impatient and just want something immediately mm-hmm. but sometimes you have to wait it out and know that one bad day doesn't mean you should quit your job absolutely yeah. how did, how old are you navigating your 20s when you look back on that decade how does it make you feel and like what do you think you learned about yourself and about handling the professional environment oh that's such a good question yeah, that's a good question I don't feel that far away from my 20s yeah, <laughs> yeah, right? Right? Like, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah exactly there's a big difference from your early 20s I think though, to your oh, late yeah. 20s obviously. oh yeah well yeah I don't think you I obviously still have those existential moments but I don't think they're as severe as they were when I was younger yeah I mean I would say that for me in publishing, it's such a, it's such a, um, you know, it's such a hard field to get into and it's, and so people stay and they love it massively. And I liked it, but I didn't love it the way I saw other people being so fulfilled by it. So I was still writing on the side and stuff like that. And that definitely helped. Um, but I would say it didn't take until the end of my twenties when we started speech change or started at least thinking about speech change and doing my own thing our own thing rather that, um, I could feel so passionately about that gave me such a sense of purpose that I had been searching for. Not to say that we still don't have needling thoughts, I'm sure, but it's much more pointed and 
I, this feels right in a way. And that could be from sort of turning from twenties to your thirties, but, um, I definitely was always a searcher. Yeah. I mean, I know it's so cliche, but I actually love that Steve Jobs quote where it's like, yeah, connecting the dots. I think about it all the time. It's like, you cannot connect the dots forward. You can only connect them backwards. So you just have to trust your gut. And I think that's something that only until this age, did I understand what trusting my gut meant and how important that is Mm -hmm. and how anytime I don't trust my gut, something goes awry. And it's like, oh, that's what trusting your gut means. <laughs> but even those moments, I think, do teach you something about what you do or don't like or do or don't want and and bring you to the next step. I mean, every I, to your point, you look backwards and connect them, but they feel like so all-consuming in that moment, your mistakes, your accidents, but really I think they've always brought you to something bigger, better, clearer. Yeah. So I, I, yeah, I would say it's I'm more at peace with, with things now than I was at that age. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about now, like connecting the dots at this moment, you both have quite multi-hyphenated kind of careers and obviously backgrounds and interests. Uh, it's probably a hard thing to do, but in a nutshell, would you both kind of just give me a summary of what you're putting work into at the moment? Yeah, so I left Scholastic not that long ago to do um, to sort of have more time to do Speech Tank. So we... I assume you're going to tell the listeners this, but we have a speech writing yes, company. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and we write speeches for all occasions. And most of those occasions are weddings. Um, and so we've been really lucky that it's been, um, we've been able to focus a lot of our time on that. So I do that. And then I also um, head up brand marketing at a co-working and community space called Union that is in um, smaller towns like college towns in America. Uh, and I'm the director of partnerships for The Wing, which is a co-working community space designed for women. So, Coincidentally, also a co-working yeah. community space. <laughs> <laughs> and Marissa is also a member yeah. <laughs> of The Wing. So, of course, we would uh, coordinate our lives like that. <laughs> really works out well for us. <laughs> so, yeah, I work with several brands that you probably know about, of, um, put together uh, marketing programs for those brands um, for our members. And then, obviously, you, you both work together on Speech Tank as well. So, yes. Yeah. Yes. So, how does Speech Tank fit into your lives and your work? For me, so I work from I work remotely for Union. So I, I, you mean like how do we structure our days? Yeah. Or like you know how do you manage doing it's, it's, two jobs? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It um it takes work. It takes practice. Yeah. I think you just are kind of never off. I, there's no. I mean, when you're running your own company, no matter what, there's no off button. But it is, makes it easier because it's her own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and Christine has like a very specific way that she does things. Um, she schedules her days like hour by hour, half hour, but 45 minutes by 45 oh. minutes. Oh. I don't know. She's tried to teach it to me. <laughs> I, is it self-taught or is it an actual technique that people can Google? <laughs> no. Or can you, can you tell them? Yeah. I think people are probably already doing it. My way is just probably an extreme version of that. Yeah. But basically, I have a sticky note that lives on my computer and it'll say, truly, it's crazy, 7 to 7.30, shower. Like, like, like 7.30 yeah. to 8, get ready. Yeah. 8, leave apartment. Yeah. Um, and if I'm writing a speech, it might be like 6 to 7, write the speech. Yeah. <laughs> like eight um, to And nine, I'll call. read her sticky notes and be like, do you really have to remind yourself to shower? <laughs> <laughs> and then it's like, well, if you're that busy, you might, yeah. you might be like, where am I supposed to be right now? Right. The, the sticky note will tell me. Um, but I find it incredibly effective. Yeah. 
It is. But meanwhile, I'm like in the shower being like, I have to go take the shower to think about the speech because it, we just work completely differently where I'm like, that's where I get like my creative juices flowing and whatever. But either way, you have to like just organize your day in such a way where you're completing everything in some some way, somehow. So whether it's like you want to stay up till 3 a.m. or you want to do it Christine's way, um, I think that you just have to figure out how you can make it work for you. And you both obviously have very interesting careers beyond speech. I really want to dig in a bit more into your co-founded company. Can you tell people who don't know anything about it what it what it is and where the idea came from? So like I said, it's a speech writing company. Uh, we do lots of wedding, of wedding speeches. And so I'd say that the idea came from probably a lot of you will agree sitting at weddings and hearing speeches that weren't so great. Didn't, <laughs> you know, do the moment justice to put it kindly. And so that was part of it. And then also that we were helping our friends write things like, cause that's what I sort of to have done my whole life. And, um, at the same time, Christine was also helping another friend write her thing. And, um, we were talking about it and we just sort of had this aha moment where we thought like, if our friends need help, surely other people need help too. Our friends are awesome, smart, confident, great, funny people. And yet they couldn't tell their stories. They couldn't storytell at all. Um, sorry, friends. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, horrible. No, um, and we just realized people have a really hard time. First of all, people have a hard time storytelling, but they have a hard time. No one's public speaks very often anymore in their jobs and, you know, figuring out like what is the right story to tell and how do you tell it? Um, just cause you're a great best friend or bride or what have you doesn't mean that the day of you become this great speechwriter. It's so silly. It's such an, it's, it's such an unbelievable ask actually that you're mm-hmm. making to someone. It truly is an honor. And so we thought if we could help people do that, that's something that we would, we just felt like that was like really um, a calling. How did you make the transition from doing it for friends to then being like, well, there's definitely a business idea here? Oh my God, we didn't, we didn't even know what we were doing. We yeah. didn't, we didn't, we just did, we just took a risk. Yeah. I think we, we had an aha moment mm-hmm. we were, when we were sitting at brunch and realized that we were both writing speeches for friends. And in that moment, we took out a notepad and started brainstorming what the name of the company would be. And we still have the notes today <laughs> and it says speech Inc. And we were like, let's do this. And I was working at CFDA at the time, Council of Fashion Designers of America. And I had an amazing friend who was a, a creative director. And I was like, Kelsey's going to design the website. Yeah, she's Shout out to Kelsey. Yeah. Shout out to Kelsey. who was incredible. She's going to have an eye for it. She's just going to get it. And she did. She took the concept and ran with it. And we did a shoot. And Tori Russ shot it, which was so cool. And and yeah, we went from there. Once we had the website, we felt very official. And then... But to that point, we didn't, we didn't really know that people... We just had a guess. We just were like, people will pay us to do this. Like, we just thought that there were people who needed it. and we, But we didn't have necessarily proof of concept until we actually launched and put effort into it. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is an interesting way to looking back mm-hmm. to connect the dots backwards and um, to do to do the business really. Yeah, totally. Before the website actually went up, we had written a few speeches and got their testimonials back and they had killed right. it. So I think we did start to get our confidence up and start to feel like, okay, we, we've tested this. We do have proof of concept. So then we, we went live December, 2016 and I emailed Alex Megan, who we call our speech tank fairy godmother, who was incredible. She was um, the managing editor of Vogue.com at the time and also has Over the Moon, which is uh, a wedding site catered to brides and maids of honors and and grooms. But she ran a piece on Vogue.com for us. And I think shortly thereafter, we started getting other press and and other people emailing us, which was 
incredibly fortunate and humbled by, um, and then started getting a, a lot of clients that way. And what's the kind of process like when you onboard a client? And have, you, you know, it must be a challenge to get all of the stories that are relevant out of them and then find a way to tell it in a way that is representative of how that person would tell a story as yeah. well. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you'd be great at it because <laughs> it's exactly the skill. Um, I mean, obviously, Christine brings her background from psych and she um, did all these longitudinal studies where she had to um, quote, do probing questions. Um, we don't need to air quote that. <laughs> <laughs> so like, I feel like when you say it, people are like, what does that mean? Yeah, no, um, it's true. You, it kind you, of you, sounds like what it means. You can put yeah. it back in air quotes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, so the process is this. So we have a phone call, uh, which we think no matter how far we scale and how many clients we get, we'll always have a phone call, we think for now. Um, we feel like it's really important to understand someone's tone um, and get a sense of them. And also... To your point, if you're asking someone questions and they're not answering them in the way you thought that they would, or they're not giving you specific enough information, you have to be able to go in a different, you know, a back door or what have you. Um, so we, we have this phone call. We really get a sense of people, hear their stories, and then we do a draft, and then they give us comments on that draft if they have any, and we incorporate them, and then we go to final, and then it's really up to them. But we really always say, and it's so true, it's really uh, the client's stories, and we're just helping them tell them. Mm-hmm. So... But it's it's super helpful on the on the call. You really do get a sense of people, and sometimes they'll report as like wanting to be, you know, hilariously knee slapping funny. But when you at the end of the phone call, it was really earnest, and you kind of have to point out that maybe it's better if it goes a little more heartfelt than they had wanted, and and ultimately that is the better route. So we get to know them in a way that maybe they don't. I don't want to say know themselves, but maybe have a different idea of themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think clients have said like you heard something that I didn't even know I was saying. Mm-hmm. When you think about what makes a good speech, the generic idea of a wedding speech is, oh, however hard it makes you laugh, like that's the barometer. <laughs> but, it, but when like listening to you talk, it kind of is more, a good speech is something that really reflects how someone feels and conveys what they want to say. And I guess that's kind of what you're trying to do mm-hmm. in a way that the kind of general audience or culture would tell you otherwise. Yeah. Are you looking for a job? Is it very uh, kind of soothing to, to oh hear that? That's the best part. Yeah. yeah. It, it feels like a holiday morning when, when you wake up yeah. and you email the, a client and say, how did it go? And they're like, I made my dad proud for the yeah. first time. <laughs> like yeah. really heartfelt, moving testimonials. Yeah. And these are so many people come to us. You know, public speaking is the number one fear over dying. People are more afraid of public speaking than dying. Yeah, it's insane. And so the, so, so lots of clients come to us and are, you know, very scared to do, to do this thing. And so when we hear back that they felt so confident and killed it and we're getting compliments all night and all these things or even just when we deliver it and they're feeling maybe they can sleep better at night Mm -hmm. that's such a satisfying feeling and to go back to Christine and I as little girls I know we bonded over this when we were talking when we were first getting to know each other but we you know always felt like we wanted to make a difference in the world in the way of like helping people and we really do feel like we've somehow figured out how to do that, which is awesome. Yeah, and, and helping people doesn't mean saving millions of exactly. lives. I mean, that'd be cool too. Yeah, yeah, it would be. But like to see the individual differences must be so rewarding. Yeah, it really is. Do you get yeah. do you get practice with them, or do you ever hear them do it before? Sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. We always offer that as a service, mm-hmm. but I think people at the end of the day are just so excited to have the words in front of them that once they get it, they're like, oh, I'm actually excited. I'm good from here. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. And people that were 
I mean, just painfully shy on the phone call. They'll get the speech and they're like, oh, I'm, I feel so excited. I'm good from here. Thank you so much. That's amazing. Yeah. And it just goes to show you like the, the blank page is the scariest yeah. part. So you talk about scaling speech time. Can you, know, you alluded it to earlier, mm-hmm. a bit earlier about how you'd always want to have that phone call. Do you have plans for the future or like a business plan? We have a business plan and we have a lot of, yeah, we have a big vision. We have, we're dreamers. Yeah. So the, <laughs> the dreams will always be there. I think we're just ironing out what those next steps will be. Nothing re- we can really say yet. <laughs> Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Um, yeah. We're working on some exciting projects though. Yeah. So now I want to talk a bit about advice and musings. How do you handle self-doubt or uh, the dreaded imposter syndrome that I think we all experience but don't admit to sometimes? I think talking about imposter syndrome, I honestly think you might have been the first person I talked to about it. But I mean, now it's like Michelle Obama. I was just going to say that. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. We all have a man, you know? And so I think that helps take some of that away. And I think everyone feels, no matter, I can only imagine how high or far you get in your life, you feel that way. Um, and I'm sure everyone says this, but faking it until you make it. And being surrounded by friends who like are your hype women or men and who can say, or person who can say, oh, you're having a moment like this, but let me tell you, let me hold this mirror up to you and tell you how great you are looking looking at. Like, and I'm glad and so blessed to have found that community in New York so that when I do feel um, unsure of myself, I can turn to my family, my chosen family. Yeah. And if you don't have family, I think a tangible piece of advice that helps me is pick up a memoir. Any memoir you pick <laughs> up, that person is talking about imposter syndrome. <laughs> it's it's impossible to not talk about. So yeah. I And I, I think about Michelle Obama, honestly. like that's I'm like, if she had it, yeah. she's my number, yeah. everyone's number one. But And how boring would it be not to? Like totally. if you were the kind of person in my high school who knew that they wanted to be a lawyer or a doctor or whatever from the time they were in the second grade and then now they're a lawyer or a doctor, that's great. No knock on them. But I think it seems kind of boring to me, you know, like yeah. to have one road and to feel and I, and probably they feel the same way at the end of the day. So I think so. Um, I think, and it's not like we all just arrive at this one moment in our lives, like you hit 30 and then suddenly all the struggle ends and that's it. I feel like it's kind of like a game of like whack-a-mole. Like yeah. one thing will pop up, you learn how to handle it and then you bop it down. But then something else will come up. And it's just knowing that it's very normal and it's part of the human experience essentially. Totally. Yeah. I just asked my mom the other day because she had four kids and she was the most phenomenal mom. And I said, how did you know that you were ready to have kids? Like how did you know you were ready to be a mom? And she's like, I didn't. Or I said, how did you know – what you were doing. And she's like, I didn't. And then she's like, I still don't. <laughs> she's been a mom for like, you know, 30, but how's my oldest father? Like almost 40 years. Um, and so I think it's like, yeah, nobody knows what yeah. they're doing, you know? If, and if people would just be honest about that, it would be a lot easier, I think. That leads really nicely into my next Good. question, which is how do you promote self-growth and put yourself in that position of like, where you're fearful and you're not in your comfort zone, but essentially that's how you're going to develop and grow. I think you have to do it. I mean, I think Amy Cuddy talks about this all the time. I, I love the power pose. The power pose. Yeah. Yeah. It's not it's right. not fake until you make it, it's fake until you become it. <laughs> yeah, but I think she will say this, Adam Grant will say this. It's like no one likes public speaking, but the more you do it, you just become desensitized and immune to it. So I think sometimes I have to tell myself that if there's something that I'm afraid of. I just tell myself, you're going to be afraid probably five times. But then after that, I don't know if that's the sweet spot. I'm just making that up. But after that, you're not going to be afraid anymore. 
it feels so good to do something scary and then think about how you'll feel after. It, I mean, it's the best feeling to feel like you've done something really challenging and you've pushed yourself and you've grown. And it really is the only way to grow, to do scary how, how things. How do you check yourself when you know that you've got your defenses coming up because you know you're particularly scared of something? How do you push yourself into that moment? I have very active conversations with myself. I, <laughs> I, I think we have so much power over, I mean, our cognitions are so powerful. We, we just have so much power over our actions. And I think it has to be an active conversation with yourself. And sometimes I will have those and I sound crazy because it sounds like maybe Marissa is living in my head, <laughs> but I'm like, no, you, you have to do this. <laughs> and yeah, I think, I don't know if you have any other advice, but yeah, I think you have to be yeah. your own coach. And I think if there's anything that you can do to, if it's calling a best friend, if it's calling someone in your life to hype you up right before that scary thing, I think I usually do that too. And it's being aware of it as well, I think. Like sometimes you, the brain can be very cunning and stop you from doing something because it's fearful because it wants to protect you. But I think just being aware of those thoughts and knowing when you're trying to put a defense up and find ways to, to break it down. I always try to think what... I always try to think it through to the end, like your fear, whatever it is, what's the worst thing that's going to happen from this fear. And for the most part, when we're talking about the kinds of things we're talking about, it's not that bad. Like if your fear is getting up in front of, of your colleagues and talking, okay, so you, the worst thing that could happen is you bomb and then what? And then people really just feel empathetic towards you and like, oh God, that could have been me or what have you. And you'll get another shot. And so I think for me thinking about like, what is the absolute worst thing that could happen in the situation and dealing with that? Um, and it never happens anyway. So, and no one ever remembers. No. I think we all have this vision that people are going home at night and they're remembering every embarrassing thing that you did that day. And it's like, no one remembers. Yeah. If you wore the same thing to work every day for five days, no one would notice. I know like, I've done it. I mean, Obama wore, wore the same suit forever. Yeah. yeah. We're just the protagonists of our lives. Yeah, and we exactly. just like think that every little thing that other people do is about us as well. Yeah. But we have to remember it definitely isn't. Yeah. Totally. So what, what would you tell someone who is on their way to work or sitting at their desk and miserable and hates their job? Like what, what advice would you give to them if they, maybe they're considering a career change or they just don't know what to do? I would say do it. If, if you can, if you're in a position, if you're fortunate enough to be able to pivot, change your career, just do it. Email someone, have coffees. I'm a big proponent of the info meetings. You never know where it will lead you. You might have to send 200 emails to get five responses back, but if that's what it takes, I mean, you just never know. That also goes back to being not being scared. Mm -hmm. You know, most people, and, and I was one of them, but like most people in their cubicles, you know, hating their life are scared. Really, if you really think about why you've not changed, to your point, if you're like, if you're privileged enough to be able to do that, like it's probably because you're scared. And so I think actually just facing that head on is, is how you get out of it. Yeah. And like working out, like you said, what's the worst case scenario yeah. and mitigating whatever those risks are. And how much do you hate it? Are you willing yeah. to take a job as a bartender while you figure or whatever have you, you know, while you figure it out, then do it, you know, drive an Uber, do whatever it is that you need to do to make money. There are ways, lots of ways yeah. to make money, babysit, what have you, um, while you figure it out. I think remembering that nothing's ever permanent. Like we can sit in a desk thinking, this is my life, yeah. but it's just a lot of time. Also do the other thing you love. Like, okay, so that's just also understanding that's just a job. That's not, I don't know why we decided that that's meant to fulfill you hundred yeah. percent. Just like, you know, it's not. So 
you know, for me, it's like, I was lucky enough to start speech tank while I was at Scholastic. So I was thinking about that. And at lunchtime, I would work on that or what have you. Um, but if it's not that, and you're not sure what you want to do, pick up cer- like ceramics or, you know, f- go to book club meetings or whatever it is and fill your life with other things. And you'll get inspiration that way. I think about what maybe your next step is. Yeah, I totally agree. Like putting all that pressure on one job to it's give crazy. you all fulfillment is just recipe for yeah. disaster. So I've got a quick fire round for you. Firstly, what have you learned about careers? Oh God, they're not permanent. Yeah, always evolving. Great, you guys are quick. (laughs) (laughs) What have you learned about money? It's also not permanent. (laughs) (laughs) It comes and goes. (laughs) What have you learned about love? There's someone for everyone. It comes in all different forms. I know you two write speeches because you've just got the line. <laughs> That's amazing. You're the quickest I've ever had. Um, what have you learned about friendship? It's wherever Marissa is. Oh. <laughs> I was going to say something we would not have. I was going to say, uh, you have to nurture it. And what have you learned most about yourselves? I can handle more than I thought. I'm more resilient than I, than I thought I was. I think how dynamic and ever-changing I am. Like I keep surprising myself by decisions I make or thoughts I have. And sometimes I don't recognize myself from one year to the next, which I think is kind of cool. So cool. And finally, I'm going to ask you the first question I asked you, which is (laughs) what do you want to be when you grow up? Mariah Carey. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. Um, President of IMDb. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. It's still forming. I don't want to know. Yeah. Happy. I think that's great though. Because I think we're obsessed when we're younger is the question everyone asks us. And we have to have an answer. But it's reassuring to know that we don't really need to have an answer. Absolutely. The the dots will connect. Exactly. You've got to have the faith. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It'll all work out. Well, thank you so much for your time, Christine and Marissa. It was genuinely such a delight to to just chat and hear your thoughts and your stories. It was the best. Thank you for <laughs> yes. having us. It was so much fun. I'm so honored. When I'm having my uh, existential crisis, <laughs> I just have your voice in my ears. <laughs> Perfect. We're happy to be your hype woman. Uh-huh. Thank you.